Okay, take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, the last chapter of 1 Peter. And we're looking at this morning the obligation, the obligation of Christian humility. We'll be looking at verse 5, 6, and 7 this morning. Let's, let's read that together. Let's look at that together as I read. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. You young men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God opposed, is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, give us a better understanding today of how humility actually looks in our lives. So we can actually follow this imperative and the imperatives found here in this passage commands for us to live by. And I pray as we do it, Lord, we can reap the benefits and the promises of putting these commands into practice. Lord, make us like you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So these passages, uh, we already saw, we already been seeing that the, the present circumstances in Peter's original audiences are believers who are coming under persecution for their faith, for being Christians. Their present sufferings were the result of outbursts of fanatical pagan hatred against Christians, which is really on a rise today all over the world. As it says in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, if you look up to that passage, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So the Apostle thought it was very important for the recipients uh, of this letter and those who would read it afterwards in history to understand three major areas, which I've been covering all along, that of salvation and then of submission and now this last section of suffering. And so in this last area, at the end of his letter, he thinks it's very important for us to receive Three exhortations, an exhortation for humility, which leads into an exhortation for uh, vigilance in our Christian walk, and then also an exhortation to resist, to to be able to resist something. And of course, uh, humility, balance, vigilance leads into resisting the adversary. So all three areas have an important place within the life of every believer, especially if or when that believer has experienced the storms of trial and suffering that we are all going to come into and upon in our life uh, from time to time. And some of those things are going to be, all of those things are going to be, in a sense, ordained by God for our own Christian growth and edification. So when Christians embrace the exhortation for humility, which we'll look at this morning, and meet the conditions laid down in verse 5 and 6, then they can rest on a wonderful promise in verse number 7, that God cares for you. And see, the real problem is, is that when we go through difficult times, do we really sense during those times that God cares for us? If we've been practicing it all along, these exhortations, then we're going to find out that God always cares for us. 
And we're going to know that, especially during the hard times. So, this morning, let's look at the first exhortation, which will help us keep our obligation. And of course, that obligation is to live for Christ in this world as real aliens and strangers while we're on this earth, because we are heading somewhere, we are heading to home, and while we're heading to home, let's do these things. So this first exhortation is going to be that of the Christian's obligation, or the, the title of it is the Christian obligation to humility, but the first exhortation is that of humility, right? Look at verse number five, where it says, you young men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So that is really the, where it's coming from. Verse five and six explains it. So according to a, the college dictionary, exert, an exhortation is an utterance conveying urgent advice and recommendation. In other words, it would be very wise for you to actually practice this command in your life because it's going to have benefits that you're going to reap as a believer. D.L. Moody, if, you, if anybody remembered who he was, he was a very influential evangelist the past century, and he once met a man named Dr. Bonner, and he said that Bonner used to teach that he can tell when a Christian was growing in the Lord. And he would say that he knew they were growing in the Lord when they grew uh, in his grace, and they begin in their conversation and their manner of life to elevate the master, to talk less of what they themselves were doing, and, of course, to become smaller and smaller in their own estimation until he said, like the morning star, fadeth while the sun rises. You kind of like go into the background and Christ becomes preeminent in your life. See, that's how you know you're growing in the Lord, and especially in this area of humility, because humility is a very hard thing to actually to define or, or to get wrap your mind around. But here in our scripture, we see that in verse 5, Peter started, he started a general exhortation for you and I, and he, he brings us to the place where he prompts us to assume the posture of humility. Peter has been exhorting church leaders in time of suffering, saying that they must continue to feed the flock and shepherd the flock. During times of hard times, it's hard to do that too. Just just to keep doing what God told you to do in Scripture, no matter what the circumstances are, just keep doing it. And so the leaders needed to learn by example as they looked to their great over-shepherd, Jesus Christ, found in chapter 5, verse 4, where it says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's speaking to elders that we looked at last week. They're going to receive a high honor and distinction as they just do what God asks them to do in Scripture and not deviate or add to the revelation given in the Word of God. Just keep going through the Word of God and teaching people the Word of God. So elders are not to lord over the congregation or the people. Instead, they're to be examples, and they're to be examples here of humility. If you notice, in verse number five, it says, young men are not to despise the elders that are among them. They are not to think that they know better than the long-serving, battle-weathered, faithful elders that are older than them and been around and been in the word of God longer. If they take that posture or try to take things into their own hands, which young men tend to do? They tend to think, you're not going fast enough for me. You're you're not doing what I think you ought to be doing now. And so they tend to take things in their own hand, but that would reveal something else. 
And it's the other side of humility. You know what the other side of humility is, right? Pride. Pride saying, I can do it. I have the ability to do it. I have the knowledge to do it. And just like it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, remember, these are the characteristics given to those who are going to be chosen to be future elders. It says, don't pick someone who's young or who's a novice. And why? Because they're going to become conceited and puffed up and become a target of the enemy. So, see, young men have a tendency to go ahead of themselves. And yet the Bible is saying here, listen, if you do that, you are actually doing something you ought not to be doing. You're acting like the devil. Because what's the devil's greatest sin? Pride. He, didn't, he wasn't satisfied who God was. He wanted to be like him. And he, he was cast out of heaven because of pride. Pride is a very destructive uh, sin. You know, a fall goes before what? A, a pride goes before a fall, right? And so the thing is that, are we all in danger of being prideful? Yes, we are. Uh, we are in danger of that. So elders have been given a standing and authority by God because of their office, not because necessarily of who they are or where they came from, but because of their, the office that they hold that God's given them. And just as their Lord and shepherd was an example of humility, the elders were to be examples of submission, especially during times of suffering. And furthermore, young men were to show their submission to the Lord by manifesting their proper and willing submission to their God-appointed elders, those who would be over them. Their example was to be contagious. That's the example of the young men, were to be contagious. And then that contagion was to go through the whole congregation. Because if you notice in verse number 5, it says that uh, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, all of you clothe yourself with humility. So, so, so actually the, the young men are the ones who become, and the elders, become the examples of, of case of, of this, uh, this attitude of humility, this posture of humility. Their example was to be contagious. Matter of fact, it is the only attitude that pleases the great over-shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's that attitude? That of having a low-mindedness or lowly-mindedness. And so what does he tell us in verse number 5? He says that you are to, you are to in verse 5, clothe yourself with humility. It's, it's actually the word there to, to put an apron on. You are to apron yourself with a lowly-mindedness. And notice what, what it says there. It says you're, you're to do it. It's a reflexive word. You're to do it yourself. You're to take the responsibility and the obligation to do this yourself. So here's a command that means a willful and voluntary submission. Continuing from verse 5, the context of humility is expanded from the young men submitting to the elders and, of course, goes to all people, which encompasses the elders, the young men, and all the saints of the congregation are to put on this same posture. A Greek professor named William Mounts, who writes a very good volume on uh, the Greek language, said this, true humility is recognizing the intrinsic worth of others. It is the candid appraisal of others as the subjects of divine love and therefore worthy of one's sacrifice and service. He went on to say, it is the decision to serve others on the basis of having been served by Christ himself. And if you notice, in verse number five, it says, we're to clothe, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So this is not something done in a vacuum. This is not something done alone in your closet. This is done within the community of believers. So verse 5 is, is in this imperative saying that we're to 
put on humility, and that as we put on humility, we take something else off, and that's pride. It conveys the picture of the apron of a slave fastened to his undergarments. The word suggests that Christians should serve one another in the same way that slaves serve their masters. It is even possible that this metaphor is suggested by the account of Jesus taking a towel uh, and washing his disciples' feet. Now, like, look, you take your Bibles and turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I want you to see this, this really mind-blowing thing that Jesus does to his disciples that is, is really puts himself on the lowest rung possible. But he is teaching them something, that it is this posture of humility that is pleasing to the Lord. And when you're in that position, that is the best position to be in before God. First, I mean, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, look at verse number 4. I'm not going to read the whole section. But verse 4, it says, He got up from supper, that's Jesus, and laid aside his garments. Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 4. Taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand thereafter. Peter Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash wash you, you have no part with me. And then go down to verse number 12 of that same chapter. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, for so I am. Verse 14, if I then, the Lord, the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So here, this passage of Scripture is definitely giving us an example. In fact, uh, when I first became a believer, um, now, this passage of Scripture is some people, some churches actually do foot washing at the communion service. And um, so there's a controversy on whether you should or you shouldn't. Uh, but when I first became a Christian, I actually went to a church that did it. And believe me, coming from my background, I was pretty shocked that you actually wash someone else's feet. And I tell you what, it, it is very humbling. I don't think it's any more humbling than that, you know, I mean, feet are not known to be the prized possession of your body, especially if they've been tucked in your shoes for eight hours a day, you know, or more. But you know what? So this, this example that Jesus gives here, and of course the, the main point is that of humbling yourself, willingly putting yourself under someone else, not pulling rank on them, not thinking you're better than them, not looking down your nose at them, but no matter what God's given you, how he's gifted you to actually serve somebody who maybe in the world's eyes are not, they're not worthy to be served. Matter of fact, they're not recognized at all. And yet, as a believer, God calls us to serve everyone else, no matter who they are, where they came from, or what's going on in their life. We're called to do that. That, that is very humbling, and we're, we're to do that ourselves. So a suggested, expanded translation of this passage is wrap yourself with humility to be servants of one another. Furthermore, recognize how God has given some the office of elder to whom he sovereignly wills Such humility toward elders and fellow Christians is the outward expression of humility towards God. So how do I humble myself before God? I humble myself before people. That's how I do it. That's how it starts. 
And believe me, do you have to swallow pride to do that? You have to swallow a whole lot of it, a whole lot of it, if you're going to be that, that kind of believer. This is what God calls us to. So, so where do we posture ourselves? Where, where do we actually do it? Well, if you notice the second thing he mentions in verse number six, so let's turn back to First Peter, and if you notice what it says there, here's the second thing that he, he brings up to us. We are to posture ourselves in verse number six. Now, I skipped something, but I'm coming back to that. It says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that's where we're to posture ourselves. The posture of humility is at the hands of or under the authority of another. We are to give our consent for this to be done to us. So the suggested understanding of the passage is allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God, suggesting in a context of affliction, which that is, accept the difficulties that have been brought your way by God himself. The things that actually bring you low, they enter your life with the, the sovereign approval of God. You are under the mighty hand of God. Now, that's a, just another Hebrew phrase uh, to show how to express what God is in a particular character. For example, the body part of the hand exhibiting some characteristic of God. Now, we do know that uh, it usually conveys God's power, uh, his might, his authority, his sovereignty. And it's, of course, exhibited in action in the experiences of men whether it would be for deliverance or it will be for punishment or it would be for chastisement. It's, it's this picture of the mighty hand of God that we're to put ourselves under is one that is, is frequent in the Old Testament. In fact, if, if you go to a passage of Scripture like Exodus 3.20, you don't need to turn there, but it, this is what it says there. It says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it, after that, he will let you go. Now, of course, Moses was to go to Pharaoh. You know the story. Uh, this refers to the mighty act of God, ultimately under the mighty hand of God, in the, using this humble servant Moses, Moses to what? To deliver a whole nation and then bring that nation that have been under bondage for 400-some years into the wilderness in which they will learn daily about the caring hand of God. They're, they're to bring really nothing into the wilderness, uh, and so they with the, go with the clothes on their back and with the sandals on their feet and with little provisions they, could, they can take with them until they find themselves under the care of God in a place that is a desert. You have to depend on God there. So that means that all Christians are to allow themselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. This strong exhortation is given actually in the backdrop of God's constant care for his children. So in the Christian's present circumstances, here trial by fire, such humility towards God must be shown by patient trustful acceptance of whatever circumstances God gives you to live through at that time, knowing that he's giving it to you with a loving purpose in mind to make you like him and to bring you under, to actually to understand that you are under a mighty God. You are under a God who actually cares for you. And so in doing that, his children must not resent whatever strange thing you may be going through because you're not thinking about it as strange. You're thinking about it as something God has ordained for you and that while you're going through that, you, will, you should not be riddled with anxiety and worry and fretting or any of those things. So if you do not allow yourself to be humble, 
then you show yourself to be proud. And the proud person has God as their adversary. And believe me, brethren, that is an unwise posture. If you look back at verse number 5, it says this in the last part of the verse. It says, humble yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposed is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what do you want to be? What position do you want to be in? Do you want to have God against you, which you're not going to win? Or do you want God's favor for you? See, it, it's, it's, there's no in-between here. Um, it's something that we ought to be considering very, very carefully as a believer because it does lead to something else. Because if you allow yourself to remain in a state of pride or being proud before God, not only do you have God as your opposer, but you have an enemy who's ready to step in and manip- nip- manipulate your situation even more, all right? And that's why we, if you look at verse number uh, 7 or verse number 8, it says, be, sober, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Who is he going to devour in this passage? He's going to devour the pride person the proud person, the one who has not learned humility. That's who he's going to go after. The, thing, the, the Christian who thinks they can do it on their own, they, do not, they don't need the church, they don't need believers, they don't need to serve, they can do it. And then what happens when trouble comes, what kind of attitude they have? Do they, they do not have the attitude which pleases God. They actually have the opposite because as soon as I think I can take things, matters into my own hands, especially in times of trouble, I'm already prideful. See, we don't, we don't often think of it like that. Now, if you just go, go back to James, this is the book right before 1 Peter, and look at James chapter 4 and verse number 6 and 7. The same ex- exact thing is being said here. James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. It says, but he gives greater grace... Therefore, it says, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice verse 7, submit, your, 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 submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the, the word of God is saying, listen, the one who's going to be right there to be able to tempt you worse into a deeper bondage in your situation is the enemy himself who's prowling around looking for someone just like that. So the sovereign hand of God not only delivers but controls the process of spiritual education. If he allows you, if God allows you and me to enter into a difficult place in my life, we ought to remain right there with meekness to learn what it is you and I need to learn. This also suggests to the suffering Christian to be under the mighty hand of God is not a burdensome place. Just like the people of Israel had to learn in the desert, being in the desert was not a burdensome place, even though they often thought it that way. It was actually a place of blessing. It was a place that God was going to have his presence in the tabernacle. It was a place that God was going to feed them from heaven. And yet they kicked and they rebelled against God and um, a lot of those who went into the desert didn't go into the promised land because they opposed God. And why did they oppose them? Because of pride. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back there for protection because they didn't think they were being cared for in the desert, but they were. So it's not a burdensome place. It's actually a place of protection when you're in a difficult situation, it's a place of strength and it's a place of help because now you're really going to experience God's help. If you can spin all the plates, I don't need God. But when the plates start tottering and you have to run from one to another to keep things going, then what's going to happen, you're going to realize very quickly, I, can't, can't, I cannot do this 
I need divine help. I need help from heaven. So we are, we are to recognize God's hand not only in the joys that come to us, but also in the sorrows and the afflictions that humble us. And many times, those times of difficulty are for that very purpose, to drive out the remaining pride in our heart so we can humble ourselves before God. And that is when God really shows you his grace and shows you, shows you that he cares for you and provides for you during those times. You really get a sense that the Lord is in your presence. So human sin is an ingredient in most of our trials. But God can make the wrath of men to praise him, and he can turn what men mean for evil to our advantage. A good example of this is, is found really in, um, in really Joseph in the Old Testament, Genesis, when Joseph was sold into slavery by his wicked brothers. I am sure they were shocked when they stood before Joseph in Egypt and they heard for the first time that their evil plan, God turned for good and for a blessing. That must have been awful shocking to them. In fact, it says this in Genesis chapter 45, verse 8. It says, now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph is saying to his brother, you, you didn't send me into slavery and in, then finally into this place. God did that. It takes a very humble person to recognize that and to admit that. And then in further in Genesis, is in chapter 50, it says, And as for you, as for you, you meant, it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Remember, there was a great famine during that time. And so God used Joseph to rise to this position for the living, for the living, for, to provide food for a large amount of people, even his own family. See, I'm stressing very strongly how important humility is in our life. And we're to posture ourselves. It was in 1563 the Heidelberg Catechism. That means, that's a document kind of explaining doctrine. And, and one area where explaining humility, I found this, uh, that uh, this catechism was expressing to those who would study it and read it, the students. And it said this. It says, In him, that is God the Father, I trust and doubt not, but that he will care for me and that even all the troubles which, which he sends to me in the veil of tears, he will turn to my good. This, as almighty God, he can do. And as my faithful father will do, health and sickness, riches and poverty are not works of chance. But these all come to us from the father's hand. See, that is recognizing that you and I live under the mighty hand of God. Another way of saying that is this, we live under the eyes of God. Every day, everywhere we go, God is watching us. So if you are kicking and complaining and murmuring under affliction, under your troubles, you have forgotten that God is there. You have forgotten you are under the hand of God. Recognize the permitting hand of God who loves his own children is ever present with us. Our humiliation will not last forever. It says that in the word of God. For those whom God now allows to share his humiliation on this earth will presently and in the future, be caused to share in the Son's glory. 
And Paul, or Peter, has been saying that all along. So there's always something future for us to look forward to. And the future is very encouraging for us believers. Now, how does it all, how does it all work out in the mind of a Christian? Well, a humble person knows God's in control of all that happens. Now, we say it. We say it. But do we actually do it? Do we actually live it? A humble person voluntarily accepts the circumstances in his or her life as the permissive will of God. The humble person knows God is for them and not against them. He is a God who is good, a God of all grace. The humble person wants others to trust the Lord and submit humbly to his control. So in their trial, they want to present the gospel, not only with their mouth, but with their life. The humble person looks forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to the humble. And what's the promise? I said there's benefits in humility. What's the benefit? Well, look at verse number 6. It says at the end of verse number 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. He may exalt you at the proper time. That word, that, introduces the purpose of humility. In order that the promise of God may be fulfilled in you. That's God's goal for all of us who are believers. It is God himself who does the exalting. Now, another passage of Scripture in Luke it tells us this. It says, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And then, of course, it goes on in Luke to say, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, this exalting of God, when does it happen? Well, God can exalt anyone at any time according to his will. But in the scripture, it says it's going to happen in due time. In other words, the reader's humbling would be enabled by God to fulfill his promise in future exaltation where we know that this is uh, the point is of the point of time is going to be the coming again of Christ. So we may not receive that now, but we will definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, receive it at the coming of Christ, that Christ will exalt his children that have humbled themselves on the earth to do his work and give him glory. He is going to exalt them in his good and his perfect timing. When he sees fit, he alone will lift you up. And that is a promise, that is a guarantee by God that that will take place. So bearing suffering with humility is the condition of being exalted to full and final favor. Could be in the present at any time, but it definitely will be in the future. God promises that. All right, so in saying all that, how do I actually do it? How can I actually practice humility under a mighty hand of God? Well, look at our passage. In verse number 7, it tells us. It's the performing of humility. It says in verse number 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So here it is. Here's the practical part. The scripture is leading us somewhere. Casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Because I know something about God. In other words, I'm a Christian. I know something about God's character from the word of God. And in turn, I do something. I know him and I do something. What do I do? I throw something on God. The word casting, it doesn't mean just to drop it out of your pocket. It means to this burden in your life to Wing it, trust, cast it on God. And what it is, what is it? It's the thing that all of us have a problem with. Know what you and I have a problem with? Worry. 
Isn't that another way of saying worry is anxiety? Right? You know why? Because worry causes a huge amount of anxiety in our heart. And so we're to take what we know that we are anxious about, that we are worried about, and we're to throw something upon someone else. This is how we perform humility before God the Father. Actually, this shows that the true Christian Christian's attitude is yet it is not negative, but is actually it is a it is a it's not self abandonment. It's not resignation, but involves uh, the one someone self humbling, which is positive trusting of yourself and your troubles to the God who cares for you. Jonathan Edwards, great thinker, theologian, pastor of days gone by, used to put things so simply, and he said this. In trying to wrap himself, his mind around what humility is, he said this, how humility is actually defined. He said this, and look what it says. It says, a truly humble man is sensible of the small extent of his knowledge and the great extent of his ignorance and of the small extent of his understanding as compared with the understanding of God. He went on to say, he is sensible of his weaknesses, how little his strength is, how little he is able to do. He is sensible of his natural distance from God of his dependence upon him, of his insufficiency, of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and guide him, and his might is enabled him to do what he ought to do for him. End quote. See, he, he was rapping, trying to understand and putting into words what it means to be humble. All right? Little strength to have. What, what, what little, I'm weak, I need the help of God. So to be overwhelmed with anxiety is to be concerned with yourself rather than concerns that God has. So we are to cast each and every kind of thing, plural, all of it, on him. So the alarm for the persecuted Christian, which has a tendency to believe a lie. And you know what that lie is? God's not strong enough. He is not concerned about your situation. He doesn't understand what you're going through. That he is not concerned with the smallest details in our life. Lord, I'll take care of the small things. You take care of the big things. That's the furthest from the truth. In fact, the very opposite of what is true, what Scripture teaches, that God deeply cares and does not want the downtrodden Christian to carry the load alone, but instead throw the whole burden on your caring God who knows all of it in detail. In fact, what you're going through, he ordered for you. Wow, that's a different way of looking at it. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Now, let's, let's go back in that passage. What if you don't cast your burden on the Lord? What's the result? Not being sustained, right? In other words, we have to cast our care on him to reap the benefits of what God has for us. If we don't, we don't learn our lessons that we have to learn that God is trying to teach us in that circumstances so we can be truly humble. You have read the scripture and you know this passage here, but I want to just to point out something. In Matthew chapter 6, it says in verse number 25, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, 
and what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothe the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse number 31. It says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then, of course, verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Boy, is that not true. So don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be burdened down by the past, but live in the present. One of the things that worry robs us of is living in the present. We are not working at the percentage that God, the place where God wants to work when we are worried. So what specifically are we to cast on him? Well, our daily cares, our daily concerns, our daily anxieties, our daily worries. Throw every kind and all your worry upon your caring God. So the Christian is invited to let God carry the burden of their anxiety. One commentary expressed it like this, worry worry or anxiety is when one does not know whether to do this or that. In other words, worry is a huge distraction to doing what you know you ought to be doing. It almost cripples you. Christians are to cast all all that creates anxiety on God, whether it be small or large, whether it be trivial or other. Cast anything that distracts or prompts us to fear and worry. These are to be handed over to a caring God. So, in other words, practicing humility is casting your care on God, saying, Lord, I cannot do it. I need your help. So memories of of the past cast on God. Bad experience that you had that comes into your Christian life, broken relationships, broken hearts, bad sinful behavior, bad choices you made, you bring into your Christian life. Sometimes you think about those so much and you drag those into your Christian life that you worry about something you can't do nothing about. And they burden you down. And then the the pressures of the present. Career and work and school. Housing and financial concerns and difficult times. Raising your kids. Spiritual and physical health. And then upon that, the insults that you may receive during times of trouble, or the shame, or the loss, because you're a believer. So there's pressures of the present, and then, of course, there's fears for the future. Am I going to grow to a certain, live to a certain age? Will I have the money to live when I get to that age? What about grandkids? What about changes of life? What about your health as you get older? What about aging? and the problems that come with aging? What about losing a spouse or a family member, and now there's loneliness that you have never dealt with in your life that you have to deal with then? What about just sickness, and then finally looking at the face of death? All those things are definitely, and and way more, uh, are, there's enough, there's such a pile of stuff that can cause us to worry and cause anxiety. See, God wants us to presently get up every day, and when you pray, Anything that's burdening your heart, 
anything that's weighing on your mind, anything that you have to do that brings some kind of anxiousness to you, take it and throw it on God. That's what he's saying to you. That's what he's saying to I. And why is he saying that to us? Because he wants us to be freed up from that burden so we can actually think. So we can actually think. So we can actually know what to do. So when we cast our cares on the Lord, we often find that they, they were concerns of our own selfishness and pride and not the cares of his kingdom. If we are sufficiently humbled to be willing to do it, we may cast our worry upon him whether we do it or not. It is a test of the sincerity and the reality of our own growth and humility. So don't let go of such an important and fundamental truth we find here this morning in the Scripture. Know this well, because this is where Satan will attack you and I with the fiercest and the deadliest of blows to tempt you to doubt the word of God, to tempt you to doubt the character of God. Like, he will come to you and say, are you sure your God is strong enough? Are you sure that he is really able to rescue you? Are you sure that he really cares for you? Given your circumstances, it surely don't look like it. And he will lie to you, and he will get you to the place where you're so weakened and so burdened and so worried, then what happens to that? At that point, your health goes. Your relationships get frazzled. Your even desire to want to do the things of the Lord get diminished. All because of worry. Because then worry must be a sin. Because I am not trusting in God. I am trusting what I could do and what I think is right and what I deserve and what I, what I, you know, the rights that I have. No, you have no rights as a believer. You have one right, the right to serve God. It's a right you never had before until you became a believer, and it's a good right. So if your enemy can get you to think that he is not involved and unconcerned about your dilemma, then he got you. That's all he has to do. And where does that happen? That happens in your thinking. That happens in your behavior. That's where it happens. So remember that our God is our unseen guest every second of every day. In fact, this could be the very thing that everyone need, every one of us needs to learn. And, and what is this? In our saved position in Christ Jesus, yet awaiting full redemption and dropping off these bodies and getting out of this life and going to heaven, which is God's timing and will, we need to learn that we live in the presence of God by faith. We need to learn to trust God no matter what we're going through. And why are we to do that? Because God cares for you. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Highlight that, please, in your Bible. Will you do that? Highlight that passage. Put an asterisk by that passage. Memorize that passage. Live that passage of Scripture because, believe me, if you do, then you're going to get up tomorrow morning. You know what you do? You're going to think through all your worries, your concerns, and you're going to cast it on God and say, Lord, I gave it to you. Now let me go do what I have to do. So to trust God, that's what we ought to do because he cares for you. And once again, the cares, the worries, the anxieties of God's sheep are of great concern to him. And yes, at times, at times we ourselves find ourselves in dire straits to believe God cares. The one solid argument is the cross of Christ and his resurrection. Golgotha is both the demonstration and the measure of not only God's humility, Christ humbled himself to the point of death, but also God's care for you. He cared that you would be with him in eternity. 
And the only way that could happen is the Father sent his Son to die in your place so you can be saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not your own. See, that shows the greatest care of God. So whatever the imposed humiliation, the Christian might find themselves from time to time in their life, they must accept it by putting themselves under the powerful and caring hand of God. So casting one's worries and cares on the God of all grace gives the Christian freedom from anxious care, enabling them to think soberly and clearly so that they can be ever vigilant to fight for faith. And that's in verse number 8, which I'll look at next time. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire, to devour. That's what he will do. Let me just close with this. Because humility, again, has to be pictured in someone's life. A real lifetime, or actually when the person did live, example of humility before God came in in the life of a man named Sir James Simpson. You may not know who that, that person is. In the year 1847, he was a doctor in Edinburgh, discovered that chloroform could be used as an anesthetic to render people insensible to pain during surgery. Dr. Simpson, or Simpson made it possible for people to go through the most dangerous operations without fear of pain and suffering. I thank the Lord that they have anesthetic today, don't you? I, I thank the Lord they have those things, right? I, one, I, I could imagine one time during the Civil War when they cut people's legs off with, with just them drinking some alcohol. I, I can't imagine that. So some people have claimed that he was the most significant, that what he discovered was one of the most significant discoveries of modern medicine ever. Some years later, while lecturing at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. Simpson was asked by one of his students, what do you consider to be the most valuable discovery of your lifetime? To the surprise of his students, who expected him to refer to chloroform, Dr. Simpson replied, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Christ was my Savior. That's a picture of humility. Because he could have claimed, rightfully so, his greatest accomplishment, which benefits all humanity, but he did not. He claimed the accomplishment of Christ, which benefits all the world because of what he'd done. See, that, that is a small picture of humility. I pray that for myself and for you, that that is how you get things gone, done, by being humble under God, the mighty hand of God. So you and I have an obligation to willfully humble ourselves before an almighty God and become an instrument of, in God's hand for the gospel and for accomplishing his will. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. It is truly truly a scalpel, a very sharp one, that cuts to the deepest intents of our heart. It exposes us, Lord, for who we are. It shows us who you are, and it also shows us what to do and how it looks. So I pray, Lord, that you would make every one of us here a person who has taken on the obligation of humility, the way the Bible describes it. And I pray when we get there, Lord, let us every day practice living under your mighty hand, under your eye, and then casting our care upon you thanking you, Lord, for taking our burden, and then, Lord, allow us to be sober that we may fight the good fight of faith 
and give you honor and glory and be ready to give the gospel to those who need it. I pray this in Christ's name this morning. Amen.